Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're going to be doing a little bit of a uh, variation, I should say detraction, off of what I had planned. Uh, I had planned to do Neruda, Pablo Neruda, and I probably will do him in a future episode, but I wanted to do this episode uh, first. Um, this episode is going to be on uh, politics and fiction. Now, many people might wonder what is the connection between politics and fiction. But if you look at history, politics and fiction have always been intertwined. If you look at a lot of the fictional stories, a lot of the mythological stories, they often would uh, uphold whatever political system, whatever political power happened to be at the top of the pyramid. We talked about in, you know, Things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, where you know you get these stories of originally oral stories, and then they eventually become written down. Where it kind of gives you the hierarchy, you know, the highest god or goddess, whatever that, whomever that may be, and then the rest of the pantheon of gods and goddesses, and then below that you have you know the king, who in those stories was generally at least partially divine. In Gilgamesh, he was three-fifths, uh, uh, or I should, yeah, one-third, I'm sorry, two-thirds divine, one-third human, um, which meant he, you know, was established in the hierarchy that no regular human could challenge him. So a lot of the uh, political power has always been dependent on some type of fiction, whether it's fiction you know, in an oral tradition, or as we move into the 20th century, which is what we're going to talk about today, uh, into the more electronic uh, mediums for fiction. <clears throat> now, when you go into the beginning of the 20th century, you really have, for electronic mediums, you have the beginnings of the film industry, and you have the rise of radio. And a lot of the films that were uh, made um, and in fact, most of the films that were made were always made and upheld the values of whatever society they were made in. So American films would all, you know, uphold American values. German films would uphold German values and so forth. When you get into radio, um, you get a much more direct uh, control of the fiction by political figures. You know, Hitler made sure that every family in Germany had a radio so that they could listen to his political speeches when he gave them. Uh, he had a somewhat captive audience, and he had, for really the first time, the ability to put out whatever fiction he had on a massive scale. Now, in the United States, we had, um, you know, starting in the 30s with the Depression, you know, you have FDR and the Fireside Chats. And again, this is a, not necessarily always, you know, don't necessarily think of political fiction as necessarily always being uh, for evil ends. It could be, it could be for good ends, it could be just, you know, to enrich the political party. But what I mean by fiction is the fact that they're selling a particular view of things. <clears throat> they're focusing on the particular facts that they feel to be important and either countering the other ones or leaving them out altogether. 
And when you do this, this is a type of fictionalization of reality because you're not giving the whole picture of reality. You're, you're highlighting the parts that you want people to know. And, you know, radio fiction, the speeches um, were, were very carefully crafted to convey uh, whatever picture they were trying to picture, you know, whatever picture the, they were trying to paint whether it was the speeches of Hitler, the speeches of FDR, the speeches of King George, any of any of them were all, you know, putting forward what their view of the way things should be. And it's a very effective way of conveying information once you start to get into the electronic. You know, when you get into the oral stories in earlier times, it's only going to be able to affect a small number of people at a time because you can have a limited size of how many people can hear you at once. When fiction started to be written down, again, you're dealing mainly with only the people who are able to read, which were generally the upper classes until you start to get uh, you know, into the rise of capitalism, uh, which we've also talked about in other episodes. So in the 20th century, you start to get uh, media like radio, where these messages can be heard by everyone in a nation, or sometimes, you know, even halfway around the world, and it doesn't matter whether these people can read or write or not. In fact, <clears throat> all that matters is that they listen. And there's very carefully crafted, uh, not only in what they say, but the types of arguments that they use. Um, one of the essays that I put in my blog post today uh, was talk, it was called The Age of um, Fallacy, The Age of Logical Fallacy, which is really the way I would classify the 20th and 21st century. You know, most of our decisions since we're made, <clears throat> since we have largely populations in many countries that can vote, they're not giving good logical arguments of why you should vote for this person or that person, why you should vote for this policy or that policy. They're using logical fallacies which manipulate you. They manipulate your fears, your hopes, you know, and the combination of those two gets you to do whatever they want. Now, if you don't believe this is intentional, all you have to do is look at, you know, the propaganda manuals that the Nazis used. Um, I had to read some of these in my uh, uh, literature, film and literature of the Holocaust class I had in grad school. And I can tell you that these propaganda manuals uh, read like advertising textbooks. They basically talk about how to, you know, play on a combination of people's fears and their hopes in order to get around their logical sense and make them believe whatever you want them to believe. Now, these tactics, you know, uh, are not just used by the Nazis in the Third Reich. They're used by everyone. They're used by Russia. They're used by China. They're used in England. They're used in the United States and Italy and Japan. You know, these, these same tactics are used by governments uh, and were used by governments really around the world. Uh, it was what you had to do to convince in their minds anyways, what you had to do to convince people to get behind what you were doing. Um, because people were no longer going by, you know, ideas like the divine right of kings or, you know, the, the idea that, you know, whoever's in charge is there because 
you know, God wants them to be there. So they had to start making arguments, but they didn't really have any good arguments most of the time for the things they wanted people to believe. They just wanted them to believe it, shut up and do what they want, you know, do what the people to do what they were supposed to do. And so there's a heavy use of logical fallacies. There's a lot of overlap between political speech and advertising if you really take time to look at the two. Now, as we move through the 20th century, media starts to become um, more and more sophisticated and becomes more encompassing. You know, you have the invention of television and the rise of television as a media. And really, the first time you see this uh, media of television take off is in the uh, election where Kennedy and Nixon ran against each other. You know, this is the beginnings of politicians having to be uh, photogenic and look good, you know, in uh, moving pictures, uh, in, in television and things like that, as opposed to just being able to pose for a photograph here or there. You know, they had to be able to convey a certain look, convey a certain charisma. And there were actually discussions when the uh, Kennedy-Nixon debates happened. And there was a huge difference in who people felt won that debate. Uh, the people that heard it on the radio often tended to think Nixon won that debate. The people who watched it on television felt that Kennedy won the debate. And part of that is once you bring in television, once you bring in video, you start to open up other visual clues for the public to see, for your audience to see. So this is a more encompassing fiction um, by other, you know, things. You, you had tone of voice in radio, but now in video, you have body language, you have facial expressions, you have posture, you have all of these things that help convey, you know, meaning and also convey a sense of, is this person competent or not? You know, Kennedy was considered better looking. He was, you know, looked smoother. He wasn't sweating. Nixon was kind of sweaty and fumbling a little bit. So it made it, you know, people who saw it got more of the impression that, oh, Kennedy's got his act together much better. <clears throat> and so this is when politicians start to realize, okay, we really have to cultivate this aspect if we want people to get elected. And so you have the, the rise of politicians having to be much more uh, almost like television and movie stars, uh, which is how we get to the point where Reagan even gets to be president. You know, once you get to Reagan, um, now you've gone to, well, let's just hire an actor because actors are used to being in front of the screen. And that's pretty much what Reagan was. You know, Reagan sold a platform that the Republicans, that the conservatives had wanted to sell, but they didn't have any anyone with enough charisma to sell it. You know, part of a big part of why Reagan beat Carter had nothing to do with whose ideas were better. It had to do with Reagan was an actor trained to sell himself, trained to sell products, whereas Carter was much more of a businessman and wasn't really trained in the art of you know, selling an idea, selling a character. Um, and so Reagan was able to win that election, you know, jump forward into the election, you know, of uh, Trump. 
Trump, again, built himself on being a television star. Yes, he was a businessman also, but most people knew him as a television star. And that's really where most of the general public got his their ideas about him. And so he's very well in tune with how to uh, stir people's emotions, particularly the emotions of his base. Uh, and he knows that part of what he has to do to sell himself to his base is to um, prove that he can agitate the people that his base view as their enemies, you know, the people on the left. Um, he has to prove to his base that he's the tough guy, that he's, you know, the macho man. And, you know, this even comes across in some of the paintings and, and pictures that they've put together with Trump. You know, they show him almost like a Rambo type figure with big muscles holding a, you know, machine gun, which is absolutely 100% an act. Because if you look at the biography of the man himself, he never served in the military. In fact, he kept coming up with medical excuses of why to defer his serving in the military. So the picture of him as a, you know, war hero is a complete fabrication. But this is something he got from other uh, leaders in different time periods. You know, part of uh, the allure of Mussolini and Hitler and Stalin uh, and Mao in China was that those guys actually were um, connected to the military. You know, they they would uh, have their military service that they could bring up and say, I fought in, in the case of... Uh, you know, Hitler, Stalin, and, um, uh, ah, what's his name? Um, my brain just froze. The, the, the one from Mussolini from Italy, they actually fought in World War One, And so they actually had a background and a history of being in combat. So they kind of knew how to play up that military aspect. Well, Again, when you get to Trump, Trump saw how popular that was with the general population, and he and, you know, the people who are propping him up saw that that was a good way to kind of sell his brand. And really, this is what it is. It's it's selling a brand. This is what politics has become. You know, do you want brand A or brand B, especially in the United States where you only have two choices, you know, brand A and brand B. Yes, we have other small political parties, but none of them have enough voters um, to ever get a candidate into the White House. You know, when Bernie Sanders tried to run for president, uh, he's a socialist, but he didn't run as a socialist. He tried to run as a Democrat, because if you don't run as a Democrat or a Republican, you're not only not going to have enough base to get into the White House, but you're also not going to have either branch of Congress uh, behind you, because those are fairly evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. You know, you may have a few independents in there here and there, but it's not enough for you to ever be able to pass any laws or, you know, put forth any programs you want to put forth, because they'll just override every single thing you do. And if you veto what they do, they'll just override your veto and push it through anyways. So a lot of what politics has been in the 20th and 21st century has been fiction. Uh, and it's been fiction that has been dependent on 
you know, the different forms of media. Now, when you get into the, uh, you know, later time, later elections, uh, Obama, Trump, uh, <clears throat> Biden, you also had to be good on social media. You had to be able to not only have the television, the radio, but now you also have to have, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of these other social media in order to be able to sell your platform. Because as people, um, as time has gone on, more and more people actually get their news from social media than they do from newspapers or, you know, cable news or local television news. You know, a large part of where um, the information comes from is social media and online news sources. And so the fictionalization in politics has had to keep moving into these areas. And the people that don't do a good job of, you know, capturing people's attention through the various medias of, as they've changed have had very little possibility of ever becoming elected. Uh, if you're not an articulate speaker, if you don't have the ability to present yourself, um, you know, on video, if you don't have the ability to be witty in social media, the odds of you being able to be elected are pretty much zero. You know, we've almost gotten to the point where politicians uh, and celebrities are really not able to be separated anymore. You know, for a long time, we've always had celebrity endorsements of politicians, but now we've gotten to the point where politicians are trying to be celebrities themselves. And the only way to do this is to create and maintain a fictional persona. So fiction has, as media has improved, as media has, I should say, has advanced, um, fiction has become a larger and larger part of the political system, all political systems. It's always been a part in authoritarian systems. Authoritarian systems always base their uh, power on the ability to completely control the fiction, to be able to completely push out voices of people who dissent. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to back up and do this a little bit before I did uh, Pablo Neruda. Because Neruda is often known for his love poems and for his poems about uh, life, but a large part of what he did in poetry and in you know his his personal life uh, was political. It, it had to do with a lot of political movements that he was involved in, movements that friends of his were involved in, um, and so you get a, you 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 need this kind of background to understand why you know, someone like Neruda, someone like some of the other political writers um, and, you know, actors and singers and, you know, why they have so much influence and also why they bring down so much uh, uh, hate from the people in power. You know, one of the things that you don't want is a bunch of people who will make you look foolish. So, there's really always, a, in authoritarian systems, a crackdown on anyone who questions what the fiction, what the political fiction of the, you know, the group in charge is putting forth. And it's even started to filter into the more democratic systems, where we have people that are 
you know, when they speak too far out against the political system, they basically find themselves having a hard time, you know, having a format, having a voice. Okay, I'm going to break off there. Uh, I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. I'm going to do my best to not have such large gaps in between the episodes, and we are coming to the end of Season 2, but we are going to go right into Season 3 and start getting into ancient philosophy and ancient literature. So that's where we'll be moving after Season 2. And in Season 3, we'll we'll be going much more in-depth on all of these areas. All right, I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.